Welcome to Scaring Sam! <laughs> where I subject my wonderful, ever-hangry fiancé to scary movies, testing the limits of her nerves and likely our relationship, in hopes that one day she will come to love and appreciate the horror genre as much as we do. I like to call it exposure therapy for cinephiles. I'm James Reese, And I'm Sam Difford. So I bummed myself at work this week. What? I bummed myself out at work this week. Okay, that makes more sense. <laughs> Make sure you add the out. <laughs> I bummed myself. <laughs> I'm not that talented. Okay, carry on. I have no idea why this crossed my mind, but I came to the realisation that there's not enough time left in my life to read all the books I want. Mm, okay, unless you quit your job. <laughs> no. But the thing is, I will always prioritise film and TV over any other form of entertainment. I love books, no doubt. Mm-hmm. It's just easier to settle down watching something on TV. I need zero distractions to invest in a book. I still have books on my shelf that I got last Christmas as presents I haven't read. And I'm still buying more for myself. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and there's always more I want. When am I going to find the time to read them all? Am I going to be able to get through them before I die of old age? I'm not entirely sure I will. And kind of had an existential crisis thinking about it. Oh, that's, that's very serious for our podcast, James. Anyway, speaking <laughs> of books... <laughs> This week we're looking back on two terrifying encounters with The Woman in Black. The 1989 TV version, the 2012 theatrical film, both based on Susan Hill's creepy ghost story. And what is the plot, I dare ask, said Sam. Well, Sam, (laughs) a young solicitor journeys to the remote village of Kefan Gifford to attend the estate of the recently deceased Mrs. Drablow. There, on the marshes, he discovers an old dark house filled with secrets. Everything you need for a traditional ghost story for Christmas. It is that season, isn't it? Get out that Christmas tree, get the hot chocolate on, and watch a horror film. (laughs) Of course, horror doesn't take a break for Christmas. (laughs) Susan Hill recalled a time in the 1970s where she stayed in a house on the Suffolk coast to use as a writing retreat for a couple of months. There, she was taken aback by the remoteness and the eerie character the location adopted when she walked the shingled beach and marsh paths at dusk. Inspired by the atmosphere and the works of prolific ghost story writer M.R. James, Hill wrote The Woman in Black over six weeks during the summer of 1982. Mm. Six weeks? Yeah. It's pretty speedy work. After the stage version debuted in December 1987, the TV adaptation soon arrived two years later, directed by Herbert Wise and written by the great sci-fi writer Nigel Neal, creator of Quatermass and The Stone Tape. Neal wrote his first draft in only ten days. Hmm. He completed the final draft mere weeks later in December, ready for pre-production to begin in the new year. Which I had it in me to write a script, screen-worthy for that matter, that quickly. Well, maybe that's why I didn't like it so much. (laughs) Not much thought was put into it. It's Nigel Neal. How dare you? 
It just didn't meet my expectations. Okay, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> it first broadcast on ITV on Christmas Eve 1989, spooking everyone who watched it, including Guillermo de Toro, who is a vocal fan, though Susan Hill wasn't. She didn't like some of the changes Neil made to her story. Despite this, the film was a hit with both critics and audience, yet while the book has sold millions and a stage adaptation began its theatrical run in 87 that was only halted by the Rona, Wise's film fell off the radar. After screening on Channel 4 in 1994, it was never seen on TV again until recently. You could only find copies passed around on dodgy VHS and DVDs illegally uploaded on YouTube, which were taken down almost as soon as they appeared. When the Hammer Film Company returned after decades, they brought the rights to the woman in black, and with that came blocking rights. The legal right not to have competing versions, so the 1989 film was quickly put aside for the 2012 version to shine. Directed by James Watkins and written by Jane Goldman, Hammer's remake of The Woman in Black grossed $129 million worldwide, becoming the most successful British horror film of all time, which drew attention back to the original and, of course, resulted in a sequel. Thanks, Daniel Radcliffe, you five-foot-five angel. (laughs) I was going to say, maybe it was just the known main actor. (laughs) I heard that. Okay, Sam, firstly, what did you think of the 1989 TV version? Okay, I'm going to be blunt and honest. What's new? (laughs) I was bored. Yeah, I was a little bit bored. I was expecting to just get more jump scares. I don't know why. Maybe I've just got used to having jump scares in a horror film. Yeah, it started with, like, the soundtrack... It didn't sound like it was a horror film at all. And then throughout it, actually, it continued like that. And then the only bits that were kind of horror-like were just overdramatic, like the clashing violin kind of sounds that... Oh, there's that one time with the overly dramatic music where he goes into a room and it's just been thrown all over that place. Yeah. And he just, oh, goes a little bit faint afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Nothing else happened in that scene. Yeah. There was one bit of the film that I actually enjoyed, and I was clapping. Well done, character. Um, So this is the first horror film I have seen a character turn lights on in a dark house. (laughs) So Arthur goes round as soon as he gets into the... um, the Marsh House turns on all the lights. Ill Marsh House. Yeah, all of the lights. They made this whole big fuss about having this rather modern-day generator. Mm. They dedicated a whole scene to showing how it worked. Oh, yeah, that's another thing. It was a very slow film. Like, throughout it, not even just a slow start. It was just slow. <laughs> OK. With a, with a few explosions. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not liking this one. And you're like, hey, I like this film. Maybe I'm being a bit biased and I just feel I need to defend Nigel Neal's work. Well, I think you've been treated a little bit too much recently to all these jump scares in all these modern day films. Okay. But at one point, there's this deliberate pan of the camera where we've grown so accustomed to the typical tropes in modern horror that both me and Sam were expecting to see a ghost standing behind Arthur. 
Oh, yeah, I remember. But there was no jump scare after all. It went against our expectations. Later, it does have one effective jump scare, which then went on too long and lost its steam. (laughs) It did the initial jump, but then was, like, just there. Yeah, basically, it's the woman in black. Spoilers, everyone. He's in bed. I think he hears the carriage crashing again into the marsh, which they kept on playing over and over again in this version. And then he wakes up, and then the woman in black is there, hovering over him, screaming. Screaming. And then continues to, like, scream and cackle. For ages, though. Yeah, just dragging on, you're just looking at it, going... Yeah. Okay. Okay, okay. I think jump scares were used scarcely in the past, sometimes only once in a horror movie, like this version of The Woman in Black. I think there's a point in the last couple of decades where they became the main source to terrify audiences rather than focusing on atmosphere and suspense. Hmm. I don't know. I think I would disagree with you on that one. (laughs) Here's my defence, or defences, for this version. I like that we're given no real explanation why the ghost is terrorising poor Arthur Mm. or taking children's lives. Omitting her motivation is more impactful, the same way we don't understand why Michael Myers kills something I feel is lost in the 2012 version, as we're explicitly shown why she haunts Il Marsh House. I will admit it does make for a far more eventful second and third act in that 2012 version. And I like that the woman in black is mostly shown in the background, except for that one shocking exception. In comparison now, every aspect of the 2012 version is kind of feels like it's been dialled up to 11 for effect in comparison to the 1989 version. And I welcome the faster pace, but now I've seen both versions. The latest one lacks the feeling of that lingering, oppressive dread of a traditional English ghost story and opts for a modern haunted house thrill ride. That's not a criticism. I think that both are entirely different beasts. And I'm sorry to say this, Sam, but... Adrian Rawlins is a far more credible solicitor than Daniel Radcliffe. (laughs) Maybe it's because of his association with Harry Potter, or his stature, or his baby face. I don't know. I just felt that in this version that Arthur was a bit more credible in that role. But I think that's because more of the setup of it. You see a lot more of his job, his role... That's probably why it dragged as well, because yeah. they set up the premise. Yeah, it was a lot more set up, because in the 2020... Uh, 2020. <laughs> this year! <laughs> um, in the 2012 version, the beginning is very quick. We're opened to see three young girls commit suicide, basically, um, because they're told to by this woman in black, except we don't understand that at that point, do we? And then all of a sudden, then we go to Daniel Radcliffe's character. So it's very quick into the story. And he already knows that he has to go away for a week to sort out Mrs Drablow's papers. Something I did actually find a little bit creepy, and it's the same in any kind of um, horror film I find, it's um, the disembodied child's laughter. It just freaks me out. Yeah, why is that so creepy? Ah, well, I'm glad you've brought that up. Oh, Sam's done research. (laughs) 
So normally we're used to hearing laughter as like a nice and heartwarming kind of experience, aren't we? But then in something like this, it's very unsettling. <laughs> you can't see where it's coming from. It just, it freaked, it freaked me out. And basically when it's going against our expectations that's why it then scares us it's in a situation where there's nothing happy happening is there so why are we hearing laughter and then that that's the reason why it, it scares us so when it's just out of context yeah so i think it's it's been used in like films like the exorcist hasn't it but it's always there's loads being of, possessed. Yeah, there's and... loads of disembodied voices in that just coming out of Pazuzu and what the priest hears and all that. Mm. I think it's a typical horror trope: the creepy disembodied child's laughter. Yeah. Or but... the nursery rhyme, that one as well. Yeah, but it's basically like a giant red flag, isn't it? Yeah, like, it's, oh, what's it's just, happening? In these situations, it's just wrong, isn't it? Hmm. It's just like a cue that something's not right. Laughter and fear are both very similar on a psychological level. They're both meant to be like high arousal states. So when we're feeling like intense emotions, that's it's then not uncommon for like a person to scream and then laugh afterwards. I know I've done that. <laughs> ah! Oh, wrong way. <laughs> you scream. Laugh, let out a little fart. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> and then run away. <laughs> I feel that this version still has a place. Perhaps on a long, cold winter night in front of a fire. Imagine it's the 80s. You're settling down in front of the TV on that Xmas Eve night, surrounded by your family, and you watch this before bed. It surely sent a chill down your spine. It didn't scare me, though. But maybe I'm in the wrong era for that. I'm used to... Well, <laughs> I'm used to now because you've exposed me to lots of different horror films. I'm used to more. Yeah, I think we've just gotten greedy with the amount of jump scares that's thrown our way now. Yeah. And once again, it's another 80s horror film which didn't scare you. Mm. You're just completely immune to this decade. It didn't make me laugh, though, like some have done in the past. <laughs> so it just didn't entertain you in the slightest. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. I suppose traditional ghost stories aren't for everyone. Maybe you're just the kind of person who enjoys like that thrill ride of a haunted house rather mm. than sitting in front. You say this. <laughs> but I'm still not quite used to horror films yet. So <laughs> no thrill ride for me yet. <laughs> Um, but let's talk a little bit more about the 2012 version, because that one, I actually enjoyed that one. Well, you had a definite reaction to. I did. A fair few times, actually, didn't I? Okay, two stark differences already from the start. You see children die under the ghost presence. Mm -hmm. And after that title sequence, we discover Arthur is a widow and a single father. He is already a haunted, broken man. Whereas in an 89 version, Arthur is quite upbeat and jolly. He's married, he has two children. And a wife. Yes, he's married to a wife. <laughs> also, he hasn't got that threat of losing his job. Yeah. There isn't got this 
immediate need to resolve the situation at Ilmarsh House, and it gives him justification for staying despite all the horror he faces. Hmm. And I thought it was funny that literally none of the locals are welcoming in this version. Yeah, I found that really strange. Especially after the contrast where the other ones are more friendly and more helpful. And I know they're concerned for their children's well-being, but it doesn't diminish the stereotype that all English villagers are unfriendly and paranoid of outsiders. We don't like your type around here. Yeah, but they're not. Well, they're not like um, country yokels, but they definitely do not like a stranger in their town. But that's because something bad's happened in their town. And then they're just hostile towards Arthur. Yeah, I know we find that out later on, but it just, it just seems really comical that all of them are so against seeing him. Literally nobody but, what's his name, Tovey? Tovey? Oh, I can't remember. The one with the dog. Yeah, the one with the dog. Aside from him, literally all the villagers just are so hostile. They're so ridiculously mm. hostile towards him. Mm. And yeah, they made a big fuss about that generator in the 89 version. But in this version, they opted for atmosphere with the use of candles in... And scene. La! So you said, and scene, and I thought you said, and sing. <laughs> and then I was like, no, wait, he didn't say, and sing. <laughs> yeah, and as we said, they made this big fuss about the generator in the 89 version. But in this version, instead of electricity, they opted for the use of candles. Yeah, but that just adds to the darkness and the creepiness of the film, which I like. Well, it has to be said that Watkins squeezes every ounce of atmosphere from the dark, alluring location of Ilmarsh House. Mm. Whereas in the 89 version, I was quite content watching the sunset on those misty marshes. It's quite scenic. I like the look of it. Not get me to stay there can say that <laughs> why because you just have this woman in black just glaring at you yeah i, I don't don't like the sound of that really that version she just stands there looking at you going rrr, rrr, and you just have to walk indoors afterwards and like okay and in this version they really have no issue killing kids on screen arthur heroically saved the gypsy girl from being crushed by logs in 89 whereas mm. in 2012 a girl coughs up blood and dies in his arms while he helplessly can do nothing. Yeah, that was very tragic. Tragic. <laughs> yeah, that was very tragic. But now I sound all... <laughs> <laughs> that was really tragic! <laughs> and of course there's that one memorable sequence where Arthur stays over at night in Eel Marsh, where we're constantly bombarded with one scare after the other. Creepy toys coming to life, a rocking chair moving on its own. Oh, yeah. Dead children, ghosts screaming in the window's reflection, a hanging body falling from the ceiling. All of these, apart from the dead children, actually made me jump, though. Well, it's like a glorified haunted house ride. And I remember the whole cinema was petrified watching that point. Yeah, I'd agree with them. You could literally feel all butts clenching in their seats. (laughs) In the third act, Arthur has a plan to reunite the woman in black with the body of of her drowned son. 
assuming this will bring her peace unlike the 89 version where Arthur gets a fright and fucks off home to London. And the plan fails anyway. The woman in black can never forget. Never forgive. And can we just rewind it a moment? Arthur's character in the 2012 version is walking up the stairs and first sees that child's room door open. If that was me in that situation, I would be like, fuck that, I'm out there. (laughs) No way am I going into a room that has magically just opened into darkness. (laughs) Well, you can't leave. You can't completely leave because sea level has risen now. So you can't get back to the mainland. So maybe just stay downstairs. Yeah. And just ignore that consistent rocking noise. Oh, yeah, I really didn't like that rocking chair. Or just that room in general. All those freaky toys. Yeah, I mean, how did Victorian children survive with all those god-awful, creepy-looking toys, which I'm pretty sure most of them were stuffed animals? Yeah, some of them did look a bit like that, though, didn't they? And then you've got, like, mini... And then the porcelain, like, face dolls. One looking like the Joker... Yeah. And then you've got that weird monkey with the... All those little shaky Little things. symbol things. Yeah, like... Oh, no. Yeah, maracas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Symbols. <laughs> In both versions, Arthur and his family die tragically at the end. Only in the 2012 version, Arthur and his son are reunited with his wife in the afterlife. I mean, would you consider this a happy ending? Well, it's better than it just ending... Well, in the 89 version, a, what was it, a massive tree branch comes crashing down on their boat on the lake. Yeah. Don't any of them know how to swim? Well, no. Before that, Arthur looks over and sees the woman in black doing her best Jesus impression, walking on water. Yeah. <laughs> but again, it wasn't scary. She just stands there. Yeah. It's atmospheric, I guess. But is it? On the marsh, maybe, but what is that, on a lake in London? Yeah. Where normally you just feed ducks? Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, look, it's Jesus. No, it's not Jesus. It's a woman in mourning dress. She has staring at us, walking on water. Mm-hmm. Getting back to when Daniel Radcliffe was hit by a train in a film. Arthur may be happier, but a bunch of bystanders unwittingly witnessed him and his son get splattered by an oncoming train. They're going to be scarred for life. Where's their happy ending? There is no happy ending. Because she cannot forget and she cannot forgive. Even after that elaborate plan he had, which is almost as elaborate as the kids in It Follows, hey, we go to the swimming pool and we're electrocute the creature with toasters and hair dryers. No idea where I got this um, plan from. Scooby-Doo, perhaps. (laughs) Well, you've got to try something, haven't you? You can't just sit around to do nothing. I suppose it's logical to think, right, they never reclaimed the body of the woman in black's son, so reunite him with her in his childhood bedroom. Mm-hmm. But then he has this idea of just winding up all those creepy little toys as well. Yeah, because he's calling her to the room, isn't he? We could just go, hey, I brought your son back. <laughs> and then she still like wails at him. That's not atmospheric, is it? 
And then what? She just comes over, checks like, oh, right, yeah, that is him. And then goes, and then they bury the son in her grave with him. Yeah. Which I suppose they could have done in the first place. She still goes, oh, no, I'm just going to keep on killing kids still. She cannot forget, cannot forgive. And on that bombshell, what's our final verdict? 1989, not scared. 2012, scared. I think I would actually, and to be honest... I have watched the beginning of this film before this. I just don't think I finished watching it because I got scared at a point. (laughs) So scared you was hiding behind your hands once again. Yeah, at one point I did hide behind my hands, didn't I? (laughs) Um, So yeah, 2012, scared. Sam, scared. It's one of those rare occasions where we can say that the remake was better than the original. Yeah. Hmm... But what did you think, James? For some reason, I feel like I need to defend Nigel Neal's work because he has been such a visionary writer and inspired so many that came after that. I want to say, during these long winter months, wrap up in a warm blanket and enjoy this atmospheric, old-timey ghost story. And then if you want real, genuine scares and you want to jump out your skin, watch the 2012 version. Or do an us and watch them back to back. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. have a double feature. So, you've been listening to Scaring Sam. I'm James. And I'm Sam. You can find us on... Is it that? Hmm? You can reach us at... You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at ScaringSamPod... And you can email us at scaringsampod at gmail.com. Well, I feel that because I started the episode on a magical musical high. We should end it that way as well. Stay safe out there tonight. Oh, that kind of worked. It's not Phantom of the Opera, though, so I don't know why we're doing it. <laughs> but Woman in Black is in the theatre, so there's kind of a connection there. Do they sing? No. Oh. <laughs> then it's not there's a musical. no connection. <laughs> okay. Bye bye everyone. Bye.